0: Good morning, River City. My name is Brandon, I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, grateful to get to join you for worship this morning. If you are new or visiting, like Andy said, we'd love to have a special welcome to you. Glad that you're here. Uh, we'd love to get to know you. I'd love to help you get plugged into the community here. And and like Andy was saying as well, uh, small groups are a great way to do that. So just invite you to come check one out. And, and uh, it's just a great way to grow in your faith and figure out what you think about Jesus and wherever you're at in between. So... I want to make sure you know you're welcome in that. Excited as well to continue our study in the Gospel of John together this morning. If you've been gone or you're just joining us for the first time though let me just briefly catch you up on where we're at and set some context for you and then we'll dive in this morning. So uh, we saw from the beginning how like the other three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the Gospel of John is kind of like a documentary about Jesus. It tells some of the story of Jesus' life and his ministry, things he said and did. And But while but what's important to understand about John's documentary about Jesus is that it's very unique. It's different than the other three. Uh, In fact, while 90% of Mark's stories appear in Matthew or Luke, 90% of the stuff that you read about in the Gospel of John is unique to John. It's not found anywhere else. He ignores all kinds of things the other three focus on, and he gives us a bunch of new kind of behind-the-scenes like footage from the archives that got pulled out, kind of like Last Dance and the 98 Bulls style kind of thing, right? Pulls out a bunch of stuff we haven't seen before yet. And the reason for all those differences has a lot to do with the time and the audience that John is writing to. You see, John wrote his gospel, his documentary about Jesus, about 30 years after the other three gospels were written. And uh, from what we know from church history, there's a really strong likelihood that he's in the city of Ephesus while he's writing it, which by the end of the first century had become kind of the hub of the Christian world. And so what all that means is that the audience that John is writing to would only almost certainly have had access to and been familiar with all three of the other gospel accounts about Jesus and in fact, it's likely that a significant portion of the readers that John has in mind are people who are second or third generation Christians, people whose parents or grandparents may have been some of the first people to put their faith in Jesus and follow him. And, and so they would grown up hearing the stories about who Jesus was and all that he did. They've likely read many of them in the other gospel writer accounts. And so they were familiar with Jesus. The problem is is that what John seems to lead us to understand is that they were too familiar with Jesus. And so John's not just trying to rehash everything for a fourth time. He's not just trying to put his point of view out there. Instead, what John is trying to do throughout the gospel is he's trying to focus on who Jesus really is. See, what he's trying to do is he's trying to wake up people from a kind of groggy familiarity with Jesus. They're just kind of numb to him. He's trying to show them this spectacular, captivating, life-altering reality of who Jesus claimed that he was and who he proved himself to be. See, what John is after, what he wants for these people to get, what he wants for you and I to get as well, is that we might not just have a head-level understanding about Jesus, but that we might have a heart-level faith in him, a kind of faith that is not just about knowledge, but a kind of faith that transforms our lives, both now and for eternity. We saw how in the beginning of chapter 1, the picture John paints for us starts on this cosmic scale. Jesus, he says, is not just a good teacher or even a divinely appointed prophet or king. He is the very eternal creator God himself. He's the author of all life and light and truth, and that in Jesus, this God has become a man. He's taken on flesh so that we might know God truly, and we might relate to him personally. And then the rest of chapter 1, John gives us a couple of vignettes of that actually happening. He recounts for us a number of stories, three stories about all these people who have personal encounters with Jesus and they come to understand something about the reality, about the truth, about who he is. And what you see is that for each of them, it totally transforms. It radically reorients their lives. It transforms their character, their identity, their very purpose and mission in life. And the reality is is that what we see happening in chapter 1 It's just like a preview of what's going to keep happening over and over and over again throughout the whole book. He's coming to know about, to believe in, and to be transformed by Jesus. That's the point of John's whole gospel. That's the thing he's after. That's what all the stories are there for. That's what they're all trying to accomplish. That's the the point of all of it. And as we continue our study of John's gospel this morning, we're going to come to one of the most famous stories that's found here. It's the story about Jesus turning water into wine. And what we're going to see this morning is that one of the primary ways that John goes about telling us about who Jesus is, who he really is, is by recounting some of the miracles that John did. We're actually going to factor over the course of the next couple months. John recounts seven miracles that we're going to take a look at. John really loves the number seven. If you know much about the Bible, the Bible loves the number seven. It's this number of completion and fullness. And, and so John uses that all over in, in, the, in his gospel. But What's important to know about the, the miracles that we see in John's gospel is that, unlike all the other three gospels, John doesn't call them miracles. He, he goes way out of his way to deliberately, he uses this word that is very deliberately not the word miracle. He calls them, he refers to all of them as signs. See, because here's the reality what John wants his readers to understand, what he wants you and I to get is that Jesus' miracles are not just displays of power that should awe and impress us. Instead, like a billboard on a highway that says gas up ahead, Jesus' miracles are signs that point to something beyond themselves. And like if you stop at the highway sign that says gas up ahead, you're going to miss the gas. Right? That's the same way it is with the sign. If you just stop at the miracle, you're going to miss what it's all about. It's pointing to something beyond itself, and it's revealing, each of them is revealing something important and unique about who Jesus is and what he came to accomplish. And all of the signs that we're going to take a look at, all seven of them we're going to take a look at throughout the coming months, are all incredible, each of them in their own right. But if I'm honest, I have been especially looking forward to showing you this one. Um, I don't know about you, but I remember growing up reading this story and being wildly unimpressed like okay i guess if god can create the world then seems pretty obvious he could probably also turn water into wine doesn't seem like that big of a deal let's just move on right like there's got to be something else going on here just what is what what's the point right and I remember exactly where I was. I was, leading, I was preparing to lead a Bible study when I was uh, working on campus with university students, college students a number of years ago. I was preparing a Bible study on this and I remember exactly where I was when for the first time God, it was like a light bulb, God opened up my eyes to see the incredible reality about what Jesus is really showing us about himself here. And the truth is I've just never gotten over it. And I cannot wait to show you what is here. Maybe for you, this passage, you're, you've grown up with it and you're just like, what is the point? There's an incredible point, and I can't wait to show it to you. So, with that in mind, let me pray. We'll dive in. So good. So good. God, thanks so much for our time together this morning. We're grateful for it. We're grateful for you. Uh, God, my prayer is just like, God, I just want to do justice to who you are, what you're saying about yourself in the passage. God, it is so incredible and beautiful and glorious. And I'm just like worried that I'm just not going to do it justice because it's amazing. And so God, I just humbly ask that you might speak through me this morning, that you might help us to see Jesus as captivating and incredible and just like altogether worthy of our worship. God, I cannot make that happen, but you can. And so, God, I ask that you might cause us to see Jesus for who he really is, that it would captivate our minds and our hearts and our attention, that it would draw us to worship you, that the way that we respond is just by being full of worship and marvel for you. Cause it to shape our lives and to cause us to be a people that live for you. And so we just need you for all of it. And we pray that uh, for our good and for your glory, you do it. Amen. Amen. Well, we're going to be in John chapter 2. Uh, starts in verse 1, reads this way. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. And Jesus' mother was there. And Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. And when the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My hour has not yet come. And his mother said to the servants, "Do you Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim, and then then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. And they did so. The master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine, and he didn't realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and he said, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best until now. What Jesus did here in Canaan of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. All right, Now, like I mentioned in the beginning, right? John tells us in verse 11 that this miracle that Jesus does, it's actually a sign, the first sign through which he reveals his glory. That, that word glory there in verse 11, it refers to God's infinite beauty and worth. John Piper puts it this way that God's glory is all the things about Him that make Him excellent and desirable and supremely valuable. And so the question you got to ask this morning as we set the framework for this story, right, is what is this miracle, what is this sign showing us about who Jesus is and why He is so supremely valuable? valuable, so immeasurably beautiful and worthy what is it showing us about why that's the case and once you start asking those kinds of questions suddenly what happens is all the details in the story start to make a big difference they they start to they start to become incredibly significant and revealing and so as we study the passage what i want to do is just highlight some of those details some of those really important details this morning and what i want to do is show you how they point us to this incredible truth about who Jesus is and what he came to accomplish and how believing that that, that transforms our lives both now and for eternity so, first thing I want to show you this morning. First detail I want to draw your attention to is the setting. Right, the setting of the of the sign it takes place at a party. Right, not just any party. It takes place at, at a wedding. Now, weddings are obviously in our day, obviously a big deal. Right, people spend a whole lot of time and money planning their weddings, and and people start dreaming about them from when they're little. Right, weddings are important, but but. It was on a whole nother level in Jesus' day, right? A wedding celebration in Jesus' day in Jewish culture was considered to be like the, the highest occasion, the supreme occasion in somebody's life, right? It was, it was the big E on the eye chart. It was like the thing that like everybody was, was looking forward to. You'd invite as many people as possible, not just your family or your friends. You'd invite like the whole town. Then you'd find special guests, people of honor to invite. You didn't even have to know them, right? You just people who are important. You wanted them to be at your big day. And so you'd invite people right like jesus who was becoming a prominent teacher and these weren't just huge events they were long wedding celebrations in in jesus day they last up to a week right 7 days of wedding party right and i don't know about you but after one day of getting married i was like this is enough right let's just like that was great but let's keep going right like let's let's move on See, the problem is that instead of this wedding being the grandest occasion in this couple's life, full of memories that they were going to hold dear and cherish for the rest of their lives, it was actually about to become the source of a lifelong embarrassment and shame for them. See, what we find out in verse 4 is that the wine had run out. No wine, no party, right? That's the end. And in the context of this sign, that emptiness and the corresponding shame and embarrassment that that is there of this wedding party's wine supply right it's meant to serve as a picture as an image of the spiritual emptiness of god's own bridal party you see throughout the old testament god continuously over and over again he refers to himself as the bridegroom and he refers to his people as his bride and what you find is, as you as read is that God's relationship with his people is meant to be characterized by a kind of covenant love and faithfulness, an intimacy and a relationship that was committed like, like a marriage is. And yet what becomes painfully clear as you read the Old Testament is that God's people, his bride, had totally disregarded their marriage vows. They had, they had not kept them in any way, but rather they had been repeatedly and relentlessly unfaithful to him. Instead of experiencing the blessing and abundance of His covenant love what you see is that over and over again they had run after every sort of idol and every sort of sinful behavior. They had left themselves just not just defiled but spiritually bankrupt. Empty. So much so you read in Isaiah, God tells them, He tells them stop sacrificing stuff to me. Stop holding your parties. Stop doing the celebrations. I am altogether sick of it. Just stop. That leads us to the second detail you need to see. See, Jesus' mother brings this wedding party's beverage problem to his attention, right? And in verse 4, he, he responds in a way that can just only be described as a bit weird, right? A bit, a bit strange. And He says in, in verse 4, Woman, why do you involve me? My hour has not yet come now, just to be clear, Jesus is not being rude to his mom here, right? Like the word translated woman does not have the kind of derogatory or belittling tone that like if I called my mom woman, that would not go well, right like that would would not advise anyone to do that, right uh, bad idea, right but that's not that's not what's happening here. Sometimes it's just hard to translate idiomatic kind of phrases that we just don't really have a great equivalent for, but. But it's important to see that Jesus is not being rude to his mom and yet at the same time that is definitely not how a good Jewish son would normally have talked to his mom. right? It, there's, something, there's something there. right? One of the commentators puts it this way he says, Jesus' response to Mary contains a note of correction. So there is a measured rebuke there. See what Jesus is doing here is he is politely and yet very firmly making something, something very clear. And see that he is not obligated to make her priorities his priorities. That she can't just pull the mom card and lead on their familial connection to sway Jesus. That the only agenda that's going to shape his actions, that's going to determine what he's going to do is not going to be hers. It's not going to be a family agenda. It's not going to be a friend's agenda. There's one person's agenda that's going to shape everything Jesus does, and it's his father's. Everything else, even his own mother's prerogatives, they have to be brought into subordination to his mission and purpose from his father. That's the very thing he's talking about when he says, my hour has not yet come. See, throughout John's gospel, that phrase, Jesus' hour, always, it comes up a bunch of times, it always refers to Jesus' death. It's always about that. Like we saw, John the Baptist proclaiming last week, Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, and He does that by sacrificing Himself in our place. But the question is, the real question is, why does this wedding party's empty wine bottle issue? Why does that make Jesus think about His own death? Like, what? What? That just seems like an odd connection. What's going on there, right? Well, the answer goes back to that greater spiritual problem that their lack of wine represented and what Jesus was going to have to do to fix that greater problem. See, what Jesus is functionally saying to his mom is, see, once I begin doing miracles, the road for that always ends at the cross. And once we start, that's where we're headed. That's always the end. It's the very reason I always came. And once we begin, that's where we're always going, to his death. But he's not just saying that he's not just referring to his impending death by using that phrase his coming hour he shows it as well to us through the way that he accomplishes the miracle itself now i was telling you earlier about right si- these things are signs right just like you have to pay attention to the details on the highway signs that tell you what exit to get off of to get the gas or right, you got to pay attention to the details in the signs when john is talking about the details are important they matter Right, and what John says is that, is that there's a very specific way that Jesus goes about performing this miracle. He could have just miraculously refilled the wine bottles, just recorked them, sent them back out, right? He could have just done like a Harry Potter thing, right, where the glasses just kind of fill back up from the bottom, right? He could have just done whatever, any of those options. Instead, what you see is that Jesus fills these very particular jars with water, and then he transforms them into something new. See, John tells us that what Jesus does is he has these servants, he fill up these six huge stone water jars that were used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, and you just got to realize that detail is not in there for funsies. John's trying to communicate something very important with that. See, before the Jews would enter the temple for worship, they would ceremonially wash themselves with water from jars like these. And that washing, it wasn't really about making them physically clean, Instead, it was a symbolic act, right? It was symbolic of their need for spiritual cleansing in order to be with God, in order to be in His presence and to meet with Him. See, the reality of sin is that it doesn't just reveal our spiritual emptiness and bankruptcy. Our sin reveals, it shows that, it, that we're defiled, that we're unclean, and it separates us from a God who is altogether holy and pure and righteous. The reality is that deep down, all of us feel that sense. We feel the need for cleansing whether it's from things that we've done or things that have been done to us by others. Like we talked about last week, because sin is not just a mistake, because it's not just bad behavior, but because it is treasonous rebellion against God himself. We reject God's good authority as king. We enthrone ourselves. That's the heart of what all sin stems from. The Bible makes clear that the only way you can remove it, the only way you wash that kind of thing away is with blood. Hence the whole Old Testament system of ceremonial washing and sacrificial cleansing. But what's become so painfully clear as you read through the Old Testament is that none of that stuff was enough. It doesn't actually have any power to change people's insides. They just keep endlessly needing more cleansing. No ceremonial washing, no blood of some animal could ever truly cleanse people from their sin. It could never get the stain out completely. It was always a short-term gap, a stop-gap measure, pointing towards the day when a true and better sacrifice, an ultimate sacrifice, a final sacrifice, would be made to remove sin altogether, to wash it away completely, to once again make God's people, His bride, pure and clean, white. And in turning this water in these ceremonial jars into wine... What Jesus is trying to show us about himself is that it's his death, it's his bloodshed that is going to finally accomplish what the law never could. He he has come to be the reality to which all of those things was always pointing. He is the true and better Lamb of God who takes away your sin. More than that, he is the ultimate purifier. It's his blood, as John would later write in the first letter to the churches, that purifies us from all our sin. It's his blood that makes us clean. You see, the glory that Jesus is showing us in this sign, the reason why he is so infinitely valuable, so supremely worthy of every ounce of worship we can give him, is because he alone is the one who once and for all makes us clean. There's no religious ritual. There's no external washing that can do it. He alone, it's his blood that makes us clean. You see, there's only one way you can be clean before God. John tells us plainly about a people who are in God's presence in Revelation chapter seven. They're worshiping God. And John says the reason why they're there, the how that they got there, he says in verse 14, they have washed their robes. They have made them white in the blood of the lamb. See, here's the reality in the Bible. The thing that turns things white is the color red. it's Jesus' blood that makes things clean there's another detail in that detail with the wine that you have to see, see it's not just that Jesus makes this he's, it's not just that he's transforming this old thing into something new that he's coming to make us clean in a perfect way that the old thing couldn't but that his cleansing is radically abundant the detail John gives us right each of these wines, are six of them. Each of them hold 20 to 30 gallons. That's like 150 gallons of wine. I did the math this week. That's like between six and 800 bottles of wine. I don't know what party you're throwing. That's enough for it though, right? Like it's, you're not running out, right? With 800 bottles of wine, right? You're not running out. See, Jesus's provision is an overflowing abundance. Here's the point. See, your sin is not too much for him to cleanse. No matter how bad it is, no matter how much there is, no matter what you think you've done, Jesus' blood will not run out cleansing you. There is an endless abundant supply. His is enough. His sacrifice is more than enough for you. And there, that's just like enough for us to just sit and marvel at for a whole long time. But there's one other detail in this story that I need to make sure that you see. One other thing you can't miss. See, Jesus not only does what the law couldn't do, he also provides what the husband didn't. You see, in this time, it was the husband's job to provide all the food and all the wine for for the wedding party. It was his job to make sure there was enough. We see at the end of the story, right? The servants, they bring the water to Jesus, It's been transformed into wine, to the master of the banquet, and we he tastes it, he's shocked, right? Because this is the best wine, clearly, of the whole party, right? It's the, it's the top shelf stuff. It's the best stuff. And he calls the bridegroom aside in verse 10. He says, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after all the guests have had too much to drink. He says, but you have saved the best till now. And the point is, no, he didn't. He didn't save the best until now. He actually ran out. See, and that's the way it is for all of us, on our own, all of us. We fail to supply, like this bumbling bridegroom, we always fail to supply what is necessary to have a relationship with God, an abundant one with him. We always fail to bring what is necessary. All our best efforts are insufficient. They always run out. And yet notice what happens. You have to see this. The master of the ceremonies, he comes and he gives this groom credit for everything that Jesus did, and then the story just ends. Right? You never hear from the bridegroom. You don't hear from Jesus. He doesn't step back into the story. He's not like, hey, spoiler alert, that's actually me. I'd like the credit for that, right? He just lets this idiot take credit for everything that he has done, Right? Jesus lets this fool of a husband take all the credit for his radically abundant and sufficient work. Jesus does all of the work, and this fool gets all of the credit for doing it, right? And that is the reality. You have to see that's at the very heart of what it means to be a Christian. See, all too often, what happens is we try to approach God on the basis of our own party planning efforts. Right? We come to Him with our lives, and we say we've planned a lot, and things are going seem to be well. Right? The party's going right; things are good, but we just need like a little bit more to kind of get ourselves over the hump. And, and we've been working really hard; things seem to be going well. So, God, like, would you just like you know fill in the gaps and make it work? Like, I've I, I brought enough to the table. What we fail to realize is that the, our wine ran out a long time ago. And we just never knew it. See, to believe in Jesus is to come to God saying, not just that I need a little bit extra to make it over the hump, but to say, I'm out. All the wine, everything I planned, it's done, it's spent, and the party's not over. I'm out, but Jesus isn't. He lived the life I should have lived. And he died the death that I deserved to die. And God, wash me in his blood. Make me clean. Fill my cup to overflowing. Not because I deserve you to do it, but because Jesus did. God, give me credit for what Jesus has done. See, and here's the thing John wants to make clear Jesus is, he is altogether happy to let you take the credit for his work. He doesn't step in at the end of the story and make sure everyone knows that he's the one who provided the best wine. He lets this fool of a groom take credit for something he could never have accomplished. That's the beauty of what it means to believe and trust in Jesus. He isn't just the ultimate purifier, the lamb who takes away our sin and makes us clean. He is the true and better bridegroom who supplies what we never can. And he lets us take credit for his abundant provision. Now, Here's the reality. When by faith you wash your sin-stained clothes in his blood shed for you on the cross, then you're not just made pure and clean. It's not just that you have a fresh start with God. It's that you are seen by him. You You get credit for Jesus' perfectly lived life, spread in your account. It's not just that your wedding clothes are white and clean and beautiful, but that you are radiant to him. And like a husband who is waiting at the front of a wedding for his bride who steps through the doors, he sees you as beautiful, altogether glorious. Not because you made yourself that way, but because he did it for you on your behalf. It's grace on top of grace. Just like we saw in in the first, first few verses of the book. See, we're giving credit for Jesus' perfectly lived, abundant life so that you and I can finally enjoy the blessing and abundance of God's covenant love and faithfulness to his bride. And it's based on his fullness and the overflow from it, not yours. See, that's what we're remembering and that's what we're celebrating every week when we take communion. Communion doesn't make you right with God. It doesn't change your status. It doesn't affect your standing with Him. Instead, communion is a chance for you to remember. It's a chance for you to remember that Jesus' body His blood were broken and shed for you. And that his sacrifice not only makes you clean, it purifies you, but it, it, it's the thing that gives you credit for his perfectly lived life. He trades places with you on the cross. And the invitation is that if you have might believed in Jesus to be that for you, to be your ultimate purifier, to be the Lamb of God who has taken away your sin, then the invitation is to go back during our time of worship and take communion, to dip the bread in the juice as a reminder of his body and blood broken and shed for you given in place of yours to meet a need that you failed to meet on your own. And so if, you're, if you believe that, then during our time of worship, go back and take communion. But if you're here today and you haven't yet placed your faith in Jesus, you're still figuring out who He is and what it means to follow Him, I just want you to know, like, you are so welcome here in this church and in this community. But I'd really encourage you, hold off on taking Communion. God is not after empty religious rituals and going through the motions. He's not after a head-level knowledge about him. He's after a heart-level dependence on him. One that says, Jesus, my wine has run out, but yours never does. Give me credit for what you've done. And so communion might not be right for you this morning, but Jesus is, and this church is, and this community is, and i just love to invite you to keep pressing in on those things. And as we sing, and as we worship, and as we remember the gospel together in song this morning, I want to encourage you to just think about one last detail in the story. It's a detail that makes all the difference. Verse 11 ends this way what Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him See what's so telling about that verse is not who believed but who didn't You see the servants who filled the jars and served that new wine to the master of the bridegroom they knew exactly where it came from They were they literally were the means by which it happened and know what it says is that his disciples were the one who believed. See, what happened that night is that some people saw a display of power. And some people saw the glory of the king of the universe. And that changes everything. You see, if you just see Jesus' power, then you might be impressed for a little bit. But what's going to happen is that you are still going to be in search of something to cleanse you. See, one of those things that leads to life and the other just leads you to this endless road where you're trying to clean yourself up And whether you try to do that with your own effort or your own obedience, or whether you're trying to make up for your sin by paying some kind of penance or sacrificing things or trying to, you know, trying to feel bad enough about yourself so that you can make up for it. Maybe you're going, just thinking that religious rituals and going through those motions is going to be the thing that cleans you up and fixes your problems. Maybe some of you like Mary are trying to lean on some kind of insider connection, maybe through a family member or through a church or through some kind of thing to be the, the inside track with jesus and the reality is is that none of that works none of it works all of it is insufficient it all runs out it all leaves you longing but the good news of the gospel is that jesus is enough and even though you and i are like the bridegroom who failed to bring what is necessary jesus has met our need in our place And by faith he not only removes your sin but he gives you credit for his abundant victory. Here's the reality church. The degree to which you see yourself as the bumbling bridegroom in this story who Jesus gives credit for all of his work that's going to be the degree to which you are filled with awe and wonder and worship for him. If you just see Jesus doing something impressive then you're just going to run to the next thing as soon as you're done but when you see yourself not just as in need of cleansing, but when you see him as the bridegroom who gives what you failed to provide. He's just going to be beautiful and captivating. What's going to well up in your heart is a love for him that gets worked out into a life of worship unto him. And the more you see that reality, the more you'll love him. And you keep coming back to this passage like I have year after year, and it just gets better and better. See, Jesus is the ultimate purifier. He is the Lamb of God who takes away your sin and makes you clean, and He is the true and better bridegroom. The one who gives you credit for His abundant provision, and the invitation this morning is not just that you would know that here, but that you might increasingly believe it here that it might not just be a head-level information factoid, but it might be a heart-captivating reality. Admit you're out of wine, take credit for his provision, and rest joyfully in him, both now and forever. Let's pray. Jesus, we are so grateful to get to come and worship you this morning. God, and there's just no way I could do justice to all that is here this morning, to the incredible reality of who you are, Jesus. God, but I pray humbly you might use this feeble sermon to make yourself glorious in people's eyes. That we might get a fuller picture of you, a clearer vision of who you are. And that our hearts might be filled to overflowing with worship for you in light of it. God, I pray that would be gracious to cause that to happen. For those who are here who don't know you, that they might put their faith in you for the first time this morning. For those of us who are here and we have become groggily familiar with you, might this picture of you captivate our hearts and attention. God, only you can do that. And we pray that you would for our good, And so that you might be worshiped and glorified for the king you are. Amen.